Well, I am sure that you have noticed that it is Christmas, the largest celebration worldwide every year. Most holidays just get a single day. Christmas is emphasized for an entire month, at least one-twelfth of a year. But in fact, I see Christmas decorations going up in homes and Christmas displays going up in stores right after Halloween now. So it's more like two months, more like one-sixth of a year. And has anyone else besides me noticed that it's quite a lot of work to celebrate Christmas? I just made a list of things here. you got to go up the steps into the attic or down the steps into the basement to dig up and drag out boxes. You've got to assemble and set up the tree. You've got to untangle the lights and then get them all to work at the same time. And you send out the greeting cards, and you fight the crowds to buy the gifts, and then you stay up all night wrapping the gifts. You attend special programs. You pack and unpack the car. Drive long distances on congested highways or navigate through busy airports. And you ladies, the amount of food that you prepare and serve, amazing. And finally, you have to clean up the entire mess and get back to normal after it's all over. All this to say, each year that Christmas comes around, you don't need to worry about missing it. And it's truly amazing to me that the birth of a baby born to a Jewish peasant girl 20 centuries ago in the Middle East can significantly impact the stock market in the United States and cause traffic jams in major cities like London and Rio de Janeiro now, 2,000 years removed from the event. Well, there's no natural explanation for this phenomenon. There is only a supernatural explanation, and this is it. 20 centuries ago, a birth cry was heard in a little town called Bethlehem, a village so small and insignificant that we wouldn't even know its name today if it had not been for that birth cry. And that birth cry meant several things. It meant that the creator of planet Earth would walk upon it. It meant that the maker of the sun would live and move and have his being under the warmth of its rays. And it meant that the designer of the human body would confine himself to one for a little over three decades. Now, we know the importance of Emmanuel and the significance of Emmanuel, God with us. But I'm satisfied that many people who celebrate Christmas don't know about it. And even if they do, often they're just too preoccupied with life and living to spend much time focusing on the wonder and the majesty of the incarnation. The fact is, what happened on that special night long ago out in a field near Bethlehem changed the lives of a handful of shepherds. And it has changed the lives of literally billions of people from 
every tongue, tribe, and nation down through time right up to the present. The world has never been the same since that dark, quiet night. Like a thousand other nights before, except one night, when a piercing, bright light filled the sky and an angel of God appeared and spoke to those shepherds saying, Luke 2.10, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Did you catch it? Good news of great joy. So, my friends, Christmas should not be a source of hassle. It should be a wellspring of happiness, and it shouldn't create stress. It, it should inspire singing, and it shouldn't bring on pressure, but rather pleasure. It shouldn't be drudgery. It should be a delight. It should not be an event to be endured, but an experience to be enjoyed. And in our 21st century world of moral relativity and economic uncertainty and terrorist activity, well, we need the absolute, the confident, the secure message of Christmas. We need this good news of great joy more than ever before. You know, we sing joy to the world, but to tell you the truth, it was far from that whenever Christ was first born. When he entered this dark and broken world, his life was full of hostility. Well, first there was King Herod. You see, when King Herod heard for the first time that a baby who was supposedly a king had been born into the world, his immediate reaction was to go around and slaughter all baby boys two, two years old and below. Now, this was very typical of King Herod, you see. He was a paranoid narcissist who had his wife and three sons murdered because he felt as if they were a threat to his power. And you thought you had family issues, right? <laughs> I mean, we all have cousin Eddies in our family that annoy us and we tend to avoid and are a little bit awkward, you know what I'm saying? By Brief Show fans, how many of you have an Eddie in your family? Now, keep them up if they're here with you tonight. Don't, don't do that, probably not a good idea. <laughs> and so however dysfunctional you think your family is, it doesn't pale into comparison to how messed up Herod's family was. And you see, it's for that reason that whenever Christ was first born, he entered into a state of fear. I mean, he was the most powerful world and he was the most powerful man in the world that this earth had to offer at the time. And you see, Jesus would continue to live in this state of opposition all throughout the course of his life. His family would call him a lunatic. His best friends would betray him in an hour when Jesus really needed them the most. At different chapters in Jesus' life, many would devise schemes and plans to have him killed. And the crew that Jesus ran around with didn't really believe that he was the son of God at different points in his life. You see, one of the closest friends to Jesus was his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was someone that Jesus had grown up with. They were very familiar with each other, and they loved each other. In fact, John the Baptist really did believe that Jesus was God in human form. 
In fact, the entire purpose of John the Baptist's life was to point people to Jesus, his mission, and his cause. Now, this was not a very glamorous job, you see. John the Baptist had to be subjected to the wilderness where all he ate were locusts. He couldn't eat good food. He was not permitted to drink wine. And you see, however uncomfortable and painful those chapters of his life were, nothing would compare to what he had to endure in the end because of his belief that his cousin Jesus really was God. You see, he was so committed to this mission and cause that he was thrown in prison Now, this was not a chapter of John's life that he saw coming. It was very unwelcomed. It was unwanted. And maybe maybe that's where you find yourself tonight. Perhaps you didn't think that this would be your first Christmas without her by your side. It could be that you didn't anticipate your depression carrying on this long. Maybe you never thought that you would be without a job. And you see, it's in these painful moments of our life that we begin asking the question that John asked as he found himself in this prison cell. And take a look at what he says in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. John, it says this, that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, simply referring to Christ, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You see, a prison cell has a way of forcing you to discover, do you really believe what you claim to believe? And you see, when we find ourselves in these moments that are unexpected and unwanted and are just downright painful, doubts about who God is will inevitably rise within our hearts, right? Now here's something that I don't know if you've ever been told before, but it's this, that Jesus invites us to doubt him for a time so that we can experience firsthand that he can be trusted. Now, I don't know what you've been told before, but Jesus doesn't get mad whenever we question him. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at how he tenderly walks towards the doubts of his cousin. Verse four, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, Jesus says. But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say in this moment. He doesn't say, John, how could you? (laughs) I mean, in light of all of our history together, how could you second guess my identity, who I am? Rather, what we see in this moment is that Jesus stepped towards this skeptic in the midst of his darkness. And you know what? He can do the same for you today. You see, Jesus has a way of addressing our brokenness, of our sin, of our painful moments. And he not only says, hey, I'm gonna help you through this, I'm gonna take care of you, but he says, I can give you a completely new life. And so the question is, do you, the question is not, you know, do you have doubts? I think just about everybody in here and worshiping with us in the chapel have doubts. But the question that you need to face is, where are those doubts taking you? You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus had this way about him of transforming lives. And whether you believe it, whether you know it or not, he can still transform lives today. You see, in 2015, this year has been about real people facing their real, que- facing their real questions and as a result, interacting and experiencing a real Jesus who can be trusted and who is good. And if you don't believe me, I want you to watch this video as there are some real life stories right here in our church of people experiencing transformation that comes from Christ. You know, Jesus came as God in flesh not only to bring us joy, but 
also he came to save us. This truth is revealed in the words of the angelic messengers to the shepherds abiding in their fields that Christmas night. Look at it in Luke 2, 11 and 12. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Did you hear that? A Savior has been born to you. You. Don't miss that. What was spoken to the shepherds is meant for you and me. Jesus is indeed a personal Savior for all people, and each and every one of us needs a Savior because none of us can save ourselves from the consequences of our sin or the futility of life or the certainty of death or the reality of hell. You need to know that Jesus came for you, for your benefit. He came to rescue you. Our choir just sang about it, to save you and me. Rick Warren tells the story of sitting in his parked car on a hot summer day in California, waiting for his wife, Katie, to come out of a store. Amy, their daughter, who was three years old at the time, was strapped in a child's seat in the back and upset about having to wait in the heat and confined in a car seat. She hung her head out the window and yelled, Please, God, get me out of this. <laughs> she was crying out for a savior. She couldn't free herself. She needed someone bigger and more powerful to rescue her from her frustrating predicament. And maybe you're feeling that way this Christmas. Maybe you feel like yelling, please, God, get me out of this. And because of Christmas, he did. He can. He will. A few days ago, I was reading in the Gospels, and I noticed the word wrapped. And I guess it caught my eye because we're in a season of wrapping things, and we just read it that as a baby, Jesus was wrapped in cloths. Luke 2, 7 says, Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Well, then I turned over and read about another time in the Gospels that it says Jesus was wrapped in cloth. It was after his body was taken down from the cross, but this time Jesus was not laid in a manger alive. He was laid on a burial pallet dead. And Matthew 27, 59 records that Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb. So Jesus was given to us as a baby, God's indescribable gift, wrapped and laid in a manger. And Jesus was given to you and me as a Savior who died for our sins on the cross, was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. And finally, because the morning of the third day 
he miraculously vacated those linen wrappings and rose again, we can be saved in the hour of our death or on the day of his returning. And we want to celebrate that truth today by sharing the emblems of communion. The bread to remind us of his body that was crucified and the juice to remind us of his blood that was shed. And if you have made the commitment to be a Christ follower, please partake of the emblems when you are prepared in spirit. And following our time of communion, without interruption, we'll worship with the giving of our tithes and offerings. And there will be music for our meditation throughout our time of the Lord's Supper and the giving and receiving of tithes and offerings. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the simple truths that are the rock under our feet, that underpin our lives, that Jesus came to bring us joy, that Jesus came to save us. And Father, in our more honest moments, we know that we need a Savior. We know that we need to be forgiven by you. And so we thank you, not only for the cradle on this Christmas, but we thank you for the cross where Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. We thank you, Father, in his name. Amen. I would bet that very few of us in this room have never heard the original Christmas story before. You don't have to have read the Bible or attend church or even be a Christian to at least understand where this holiday originates. Yet what a lot of us fail to understand and realize is how what happened 2,000 years ago, how it has the potential to really change our life today. You see, Christ entered this dark and broken and messed up world with a mission, with a purpose and a cause. You see, his primary purpose of entering this world was to become our substitute and absorb all the consequences that we deserve because of sin and mistakes and, and brokenness in our life. Now, this is not a very comfortable thing to hear or even understand, but apart from Christ, you and I are actually in hostility towards our holy creator. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, we can't Nothing we do can reconcile ourselves back to our creator because according to the Bible, this is a divorce that we filed for. And it's not, it's not really pretty or even comfortable to understand it or even see it in that light. After Jesus was born in a manger, he would live about 33 short years or so. And because people got so tired of hearing how he claimed to be God and that he entered this world on, on man's behalf, they decided to kill him. And so what they did was they drug him outside the city gates of Jerusalem. They beat him, they mocked him, and they tor tortured him. And then eventually he died later that day. Now when that happened, God actually did a miracle on our behalf. He placed all of our sin, all of our brokenness on the physical body of Jesus, offering to us an escape for the punishment that we really deserve in our life. Now three days later, after Jesus was crucified, he came back to life, he crashed his own funeral, proving that he really is God and he is superior to mankind. Now what a lot of us struggle with today is what does Jesus really offer for me right now, right here? And I mean, how does it apply to my life? 
Well, we later read in uh, Matthew chapter 11 that this is the offer of Christ. This is Jesus talking. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And he says, and I, I will give you rest. And a lot of us in this room, we, we need rest, don't we? You're maybe weary and, and you're burdened. You're exhausted from carrying around the weight of the guilt that you maybe have of your past. You're, you're ashamed of the mess that you've maybe made of your life. You're, you're tired of, of just feeling burdened by fear and you feel as if you're just in this rut. And so what Jesus offers each and every one of us today in this moment is a deep, rich, satisfying rest that will ultimately quench our thirst and fulfill our hunger. About a... Uh, um, a week and a half ago, I took some time off work here at church and uh, just to kind of spend some time with my family. Well, I have a three and a two-year-old who absolutely love this time of year. And so at the be beginning of my time off, I told them that we were going to go to a very special place called Santa Claus, Indiana. And we were going to see the real Santa Claus. Now, my kids absolutely loved this offer. Now, my son, who just loves Christmas, was actually born on Christmas Eve. If he asked me one time throughout the week, he asked me a million times, Daddy, when are we going to go see Santa Claus? When are we going to go see Santa Claus? Now, because this was later on in the week that my wife and I had planned to go to Santa Claus, Indiana, we realized that we needed to keep them temporarily satisfied with other Christmas activities. And so we watched more than enough Christmas shows and movies. We made a gingerbread house. We drove around to different neighbors at night and, and looked at Christmas lights. Now, whenever we did this, to be honest with you, their attention span lasted for about 10 minutes or so, when it then would revolve back to the same exact question. Daddy, when are we going to go see Santa Claus? Now, you see, what my kids were saying was they wanted to see Santa Claus, right? And all the other efforts that we put forth to kind of distract them in the moment was an effort to really satisfy them so that they could be more and more patient until the time came when we would actually get in the car and drive to see the real Santa Claus. Now, what if I told you tonight that what you really want isn't another promotion? What you really want is not a deeper bank account. You don't necessarily need more members added to your family. You see, there's nothing bad about that. In fact, some of those things can be really good, but oftentimes what we want can distract us from really seeing what we need. Now, what if I told you that what you really want and what you really need deep down is to be freed from this burden that you carry around with you, is to be freed from this burden of, of trying to earn and trying to perform and to be good enough. And Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 11, Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, Jesus says. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in the first century culture, a yoke was a wooden harness that went around the neck and the shoulders of an ox or some large animal that was trying to get something to somewhere else. And so Jesus is literally saying, look, invite me into your life. Receive me. Take up my offer. Because you know what? It's going to be the best deal that you're ever going to receive this face of heaven. And so you may want to know where Jesus' invitation merges where your life is right now in this moment. Let me just make it really easy for you. Because here's the thing. Jesus did our work so that we could experience his rest 
You see, he did the work of living perfectly for us. He, he died the death that we deserved. I mean, this is precisely why the last words of Jesus were, it is finished. You see, he accomplished the task that literally every human being apart from Christ tries, tries to earn on their own behalf. Author John Ortberg says it like this, there is something about this Jesus, even on his first day, that had a way of forcing people to declare where they stand. And so my question for you right now is this, how are you going to respond to this invitation? How are you going to respond to the offer of Christ? Because if you're honest, you're exhausted, and Jesus says, come to me. You're burdened, but Jesus says, come to me. You're tired of trying to prove yourself, but Jesus says, hey, I've got a better way for you. I can offer you better life right here and now. Understand that this invitation extends to anyone who is willing to swallow their pride, recognize their need for a savior, and simply receive this free gift of salvation.